Uh, before we have our candlelighting ceremony, I'd like to look at Scripture. Open, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at Luke a lot recently. We're going to stay in Luke. If you would, open to chapter 1. Luke gives us the most information about the birth of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, than any of the other Gospels. And it's a fascinating material that he gives us here. Here in Luke chapter 1, uh, we have what's called the, uh, the Song of Zacharias, starting in verse 67. And I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time. But toward the end of this <clears throat> song, this is actually a song primarily about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, or the forerunner of the Messiah. And then toward the end of this, he turns, he turns his attention away from the forerunner, John, to the Messiah. And he says, he says in verse 77 that, that John was to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us or will visit us. The day spring, or as your version may say, the dawn, refers to Messiah, not to John. And he says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now look in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have Simeon, his song and his prophecy. Simeon was a priest in the temple when Jesus was brought in to be circumcised. And it says here, in verse 27, so he came by the Spirit, Simeon, into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles or to the nations and the glory of your people, Israel. Now these, both of these songs are re replete with um, Jewish references and Old Testament references. A lot of it foreign to a Gentile uh, like us. Goyim were called Gentiles. But if you go back and read the Old Testament you, and, and and learn your Old Testament, you see all of the, the references that are in these various songs in the book of Luke. And I want to look at two texts in Isaiah, which are the backdrop to these songs. Go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah is probably the one prophet that has the most about the gospel, as we understand it, and most about Messiah. Although Messiah is all throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 42... We want to start at verse 1. It says, Behold, my spirit, excuse me, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to whom? The nations or the Gentiles. Right. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. 
He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. The the farthest outreaches of the earth, if you will. Definitely not Israel, but the Gentiles or the nations. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord, or Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, Jehovah, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to whom? The nations, a light to the nations or a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Could now go over a few chapters to Isaiah 49. We see another reference to Messiah here in chapter 49. Verse 1, listen, O coastlands to me. Now here's the prophet, but he's not addressing primarily Israel. He's addressing the nations, the coastlands. And take heed, you peoples from afar, the faraway peoples, not the Jewish people. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Now look at uh, verse 5. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the nations that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. And many such texts like this in the Old Testament, which are referenced or alluded to, if not quoted, in the New Testament, but especially in the early songs of the book of Luke. So what we see here in, in these prophecies, as well as in Luke, a reference to the fact that the peoples, the nations, were in darkness... But there was a light coming, a day spring, or it could be translated a dawn. A dawn was approaching. So tonight I want to talk very briefly about first the darkness, and then secondly, the dawn. And then we'll we'll apply it to ourselves quickly. First, the darkness. In the scripture, darkness is a symbol for everything that is bad. Okay? In the Bible, darkness is bad. And you can put any bad word in there, and it fits. Darkness is always bad in Scripture. And the contrast, light, is always good, right? But there's three things in particular that the darkness symbolizes that I want to touch on briefly. One, ignorance, which is darkness of mind, right? Two, immorality, which is darkness of conduct. And three, despair, which is a darkness of spirit and a darkness of heart. First, the darkness of ignorance. The the nations, apart from Israel, lived without the knowledge of God. Without the knowledge of God. In Romans 1, we're told that 
Although God created the world and through the world, the nations should have known God, they didn't know God. Or should I say, they knew God but didn't know God at the same time. It says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What truth? What truth were men suppressing? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, or could be translated among them, for God has shown it to them. So God has shown the nations knowledge of himself. How did he do this? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even so, the eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened. So although there was the knowledge of God available, men suppressed that knowledge, so they knew, but they didn't know. Right? So the pagan nations were without a knowledge of God that Israel had through not only natural revelation, but the revelation of God's word. And so this knowledge of God leads to a, a, an ignorance of oneself, an ignorance of purpose, an ignorance of duty, an ignorance of, of life. So the, the, the lack of knowledge of God leads to people not knowing who they are, really not knowing what their purpose on earth is. And, and people live then with a sense of hopelessness, a sense of despair. There's no, they, they do not see their lives as a trajectory to some future point because their lives are going nowhere. Right? Their lives are going nowhere because they have no real purpose. And although God has written the law on, the, on their heart so they should know right and wrong, they suppress that truth, and so they live without a knowledge of right and wrong. So in a, in, a, in a world where God is denied and God is not known, then men no longer know, or should we say, they, they choose to not know the difference between right and wrong. Today we use fancy words like moral relativism for these things, which is the assertion there is no right or wrong, because there is no God, which means there is no lawgiver. There is no moral authority. And because there's no moral authority, this leads to the second problem of darkness, and that is immorality or impurity. Falsehood in the mind leads to error in behavior. Ignorance and immorality are always bound together as cause and effect. We see this in Ephesians 4, if you want to look at it with me. In Ephesians 4, Paul addresses the Gentiles because this is an epistle about the universal church, the church which is made up of both Jew and Gentile. And he says here in chapter 4 of Ephesians in verse 17, But this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk or the nations. He's talking to Gentiles, but he's saying, you Gentiles don't walk as Gentiles. In the futile, notice, notice these phrases. I'm, now I'm reading the King James, New King James Version. In the futility of their mind, 
having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, did you just see all those phrases, those words? Futility, darkened understanding, ignorance, blindness of heart. This is this ignorance that I'm describing of those without God. <clears throat> but look where it leads. Verse 19, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness and to work all uncleanness with greediness. And we see this patterned in Romans 1 and another text that when a culture or a society loses, and we, we should say suppresses, and thus loses the knowledge of God, they lose the knowledge of right and wrong, and thus they live without morality, which is simply immorality. We see it in 2 Timothy 3. And one thing about the, the, the uh, scriptures that many people find challenging is the, how shall we say, the very grim view it gives of human nature apart from Jesus. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what we read in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. You see, that's the root problem. That's the root problem. Instead of loving God, thus they love themselves, and loving themselves they love pleasure. They give themselves over to pleasure as an act of self-love and self-indulgence. So darkness is ignorance, darkness is immorality, and then darkness is despair. There is a hopelessness in the, in the life of the, of the nation and the people without God because they have no purpose or should I say they believe they have no purpose? And Paul addresses the, the nation, excuse me, the Gentiles in Ephesians, and he says this. He says, Remember, in chapter 2, verse 11, that you once Gentiles in the flesh, once Gentiles in the flesh, now they were still Gentiles. <laughs> they didn't become non Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. Anybody else here a Gentile? But a Gentile in the flesh, meaning living as a Gentile, having your behavior, your conduct, lifestyle as a Gentile, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Listen, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. Now, I can remember those days in my life because I came to Christ when I was 20. And I know what it was like to live without Christ. I know what it was like to live without any hope, to feel that your life is totally meaningless. Anybody have that experience? And then when you found Christ, you saw that you had a purpose, right? And your life took on a new 
value, a new dignity, really a new excitement because you knew that there was your life was significant and had purpose. But the, the nations live in darkness apart from God and they have, and thus they live in ignorance and immorality and without hope. But as we're, we read earlier, the day spring or the dawn has come. Amen? What is the day spring or who is the dawn? It is none, none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus even said in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. And remember, just as the term darkness speaks of everything bad, so light speaks of, speaks of everything good. Not just good in the sense of pure, but good in the sense of useful, of beneficial, of that which brings true happiness and true joy. The light is good. So first, the light brings knowledge versus ignorance. It first of all brings us the knowledge of God. And that's the most important knowledge, right? The knowledge of God. You have to read this with me in the Gospel of John. Go to the Gospel of John. I know we're looking at a lot of scriptures. Is that okay? Gospel of John. 1.1. One, one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So here we see the second person of the Trinity dwelling with God, but also being equal with God in his deity. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, your version may read differently because that, that word there could be translated, the darkness could not overcome it, or the darkness could not take hold of it, or the darkness could not uh, defeat it or apprehend it. It could be translated any of those ways. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and this man came for a witness to bear witness to what? To bear witness to the light, the dawn, the day spring that all through him might believe. He, John, was not the light. He was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He, meaning the light, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Why? Because they were in darkness. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Why? Because they were in darkness. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen? And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son. In some versions read, the only begotten God. He has declared or explained 
or revealed him. The knowledge of God, the, the light of the knowledge of God comes, as Paul says, in the face of Jesus Christ. The way to know God is to know God through Jesus Christ. He that would know the Father must first know the Son. And the Son then reveals to us the Father. And as we learn about God, we learn so many other things. We learn about our own selves, right? By knowing God, we realize that we're not like God. As a matter of fact, we realize we aren't God. Because if there is no God, if there's no right or wrong, then my will is supreme. Right? Who says your will is greater than my will? But then we find out there's a will greater than ours. There's an authority greater than us to whom we are called to submit. And so we learn that we're sinners, but then as we also learn how to be saints. We learn that we have a duty toward God and we have a duty toward man. And thus we are, we are changed by this knowledge. And so not only do we gain knowledge versus ignorance, we also gain holiness versus immorality. Jesus Christ tells us not only what to do, but he empowers us to do it. Let me say it again. Jesus Christ not only tells us what to do, he empowers us to do it. Jesus said that if we know his word, we will be his disciples. He says if we know his word, we will know the truth. And what will the truth do? The truth will set us free. Irony of ironies, that one of the main reasons people do not come to Jesus Christ because they think of Jesus or, or Christianity as, as, a, as something that's going to shackle them, something that's going to tie them up, that they won't get to do what they want to do. They won't have fun or, or something, as, as if it's, it's, it's this constraining thing. The only thing Jesus constrains us from is sin. When we come to Christ and we know Christ, instead of being constrained, we are liberated. That we're set free. Not only free from sin, but we are set free to be the very person God created us to be. That was one of the most astounding things to me when I became a Christian. To realize not only that I had purpose, but that I was designed and created in a certain way by God for God. It's like a lock and a key that fit together. Every person is created. Yes, we're all unique, but one thing we all have in common is we have this, this hole inside of a heart. You can call that the lock. And the key that fits in that hole is Jesus Christ. Why? Because we were created to know God. And knowing him is freedom. Freedom from everything that is dark and everything that is harmful. So no, being a Christian is not constraint. It's not bondage. It's liberty and freedom. But lastly, knowing Christ and knowing the light grants us hope versus despair. 
because we do know our purpose. We know that God made us, and he made us to know him. We know that we have a future, and our future is in heaven forever. Amen? To live with him and dwell with him, to worship him. And I believe we are going to explore the created universe. Like Star Trek, you're going to have a ship. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Now, look, I don't know how much time I have because is the clock working? Okay, those are minutes or seconds? I can't. Okay. I don't know when I started, so. I'll be done in about an hour, don't worry. No, I'll be done in a few minutes. Now, Jesus is the light, right? The dawn, the day spring. But one of the astounding things that, struck, that strikes one when you, when you read the Gospels is that there were people that met Jesus, that knew Jesus, that literally looked at Jesus in the face, just like I'm looking at this microphone. They could see Jesus right there, but they didn't see the light. You know what I'm saying? They didn't see the light. Now, light's an interesting phenomenon because in one sense, you don't see light, but what you see is you see everything else because of the light. I mean, okay, you see a light bulb, you see a lamp, you see a candle, right? But do you see the light waves? You actually don't. But you see everything else by the light. So there were people that that met Jesus, and some saw the Messiah. Some saw the light. Some saw a man who was deranged, literally. Some said he was mad. Some said he was actually demon-possessed. Some said he was a drunkard. How could they look at the light and see darkness? Right? It's like looking at the sun and seeing a cloud. How could this be? It's a, it, it seems like a mystery, but it's actually not a mystery. Because what we learn in Scripture is that although the light shines, we must have an internal apparatus to see it. The light can shine right in front of us. But if we're spiritually blind, we can't see it. Just as if a person is physically blind, you can say, the sun is shining. What does it mean to them? Can they see the light coming from the sun? No. Is that because it's not shining? No. It's because they do not have the ability to see what is shining. And so Jesus lived, and many people, when they saw him, they didn't see light. They saw darkness. They saw evil. And when he was crucified, they thought they were crucifying evil. But he was light. It's astounding. So my question to you is, can you see the light? Can you see it? Just because it's shining doesn't mean we can see it. 
If we're going to see the light, we must first have an internal change of heart. We must have an inner apparatus, if you will, to be able to behold the light. Otherwise, we can look at the light and think it's darkness. Before I came to Christ, that's what I thought of Christ. I thought he was darkness and not light. Bondage, not freedom. So there has to be a heart change in us. So in the Gospels, Jesus quotes Isaiah where he talks about how there would be those who see and do not understand and those who hear but do not perceive. Because they had closed their eyes, they had hardened their hearts. Yes, their eyes were, their physical eyes were wide open, but their spiritual and moral eyes were closed. Their ears were stopped up, if you will, on the inside. So seeing they did not see and hearing they did not hear. Even though the light stood before them and declared to them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They crucified him as evil. So the light has come, the light shines, but do we see it? That's the question. Now, first of all, to the believer here, if you really have seen Jesus, your prayer should be that you are continually enabled to see more and more light. More and more light. Not just enough light to get saved, but more and more light of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of people wear sunglasses when the sun's shining, right? Because it's just too much light. And sometimes Jesus can be like that in your life, right? He is shining and you're like, oh, man, I don't know if I want that much light. <laughs> you're showing me a little bit too much of my heart. But our prayer ought to be more light. As the psalmist said to God, in thy light we will see light. And that should be the prayer of every professing Christian. But maybe you came here tonight and you're not a Christian. You're, you're here because it's Christmas. Oh, your prayer ought to be, God, enable me to see the light. Enable me to see the light. Jesus said that if we are to see the kingdom, see the things of God, we must be born again. Otherwise, we can't see these things. They can be right in front of us. We're blind. I'll never forget how I read the Bible before I was a Christian, then I read it afterwards, and it was like a different book. I can now see. As the man in the temple said that Jesus healed, I once was blind, but now I see. And it was a radical transformation. And that's what God gives to us if we are willing. If you are willing to see, and God will grant you sight. Just as Jesus went about healing the sick and healing the blind, he is willing to give you spiritual eyes if you ask for them. If you ask Jesus, I want to see. I want to see you. I want to know God. 
Grant me sight. He will give it to you. And he'll give it to you because he will give you his spirit. And when the spirit comes into your heart, you are then born again. And you now go from being blind to seeing. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus, the day spring, to remove us from darkness and bring us into light. I pray for all the Christians here, Lord, that we might ask for more and more light, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and, our, and as a result, really, in our love for you. We pray, Lord, for any here that came in not knowing you, not seeing you, and we ask that you might grant them the gift of sight, even this very night. We ask that before they leave this room tonight, they would ask you for the gift of sight, that they would ask that you might grant them a new heart, that they might see you and know you. And we thank you, Lord, that that is a prayer that you will always, always answer. Lord, we pray that tomorrow as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, that we would honor and glorify him. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.